I don't know if it's been your experience, but it has been mine that most of the time this text from the 21st chapter of John is preached, the preacher begins by letting these disciples have it. Kind of from a place of, aren't we sophisticated? Look how far we've come. I mean, I still remember hearing preachers, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, preachers from every tradition in the Christian world say, look at Peter. How dare he, one chapter after the resurrection of our Lord, say, you boys want to go fishing? Is that any way to have an Easter celebration? And then jokes being made about the fact that they can't catch anything all night. Oh, the sermons I've heard about Jesus is standing there on the shore. It's not the first or even the second. Now it's the third time he's revealed himself to them. And these disciples still do not recognize him. What's wrong with them? And then there's old Peter putting his clothes back on so he can jump in the water. Just impulsive Peter all over again, right? We've seen this movie before. I mean, you would think after a resurrection, these folks would get their act together. The argument goes. And the sermons go. In preparing to preach here today, I went back and consulted some commentaries about this text. And I found plenty of scholars engaging in the same kind of disciple ridicule that we preachers sometimes engage in around this text. But in the middle of his massive commentary on the Gospel of John, the British Baptist scholar George Beasley Murray holds up a tantalizing possibility. He said, could it be that we modern folks, I mean, give him some credit, he was writing in the middle of the last century, about the time I was in school. Could it be that we modern folks have the wrong attitude toward these disciples? Shouldn't we give them a little credit in recognizing that they are trying to live in a space and in a reality that no one had ever tried to live in before? It's still just after daybreak when Jesus stands on the shore. It's still very early in the beautiful resurrection work and new creation that God is doing in the world and the resurrection of Jesus. These disciples are just starting to find their bearing. They're just getting used to what it means to live in a world where Jesus can show up anytime, anywhere, when we least expect it, we can turn, and he could be standing on the shore. Should we be surprised that after only one chapter they haven't figured out how to live in that world just yet? Could it be that there's a a more sympathetic, even more favorable way to understand where these disciples are? I mean, exhausted people have to eat. Is going fishing such a bad thing? They follow all of Jesus' instructions. They do exactly what he tells them to do. 
They don't question who he is when they do recognize him. It's not the first time this has happened. Could it be that when we look at these disciples in these early verses of the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John, we're looking at a group of people who are trying to find their way in a whole new reality. And if that's true, shouldn't we give them a break? Could it be that we're looking at people who are trying to figure out what it means to live and breathe and walk and serve and rest and work in a world where Jesus is alive? Where Jesus is asking new things of us, giving new questions to us, offering us new challenges, inviting us to serve him in new ways. And as I start to imagine that reality, it hits pretty close to home. As I travel around and visit congregations, a different congregation almost every Sunday, I see a lot of evidence right now that ministers and lay leaders in congregations find ourselves trying to find our way in a whole new reality of church where there are new ways of gathering and new opportunities and new challenges and, and tremendous social difficulties all around us. I see people trying to find their vocabulary, find their steps, find their nourishment, find their way in a whole new world where every time we don't get it right the first time. Maybe it's because the lectionary readings for Sundays back in the middle of Lent gave us the famous text in John 3 where it says, you must be born again from above. Or maybe it's because just two weeks ago, a week ago Sunday, the epistle reading was from 1 Peter 1 where it celebrates a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I have this sense that we're in a moment in Christian history where there is a work of resurrection being done, a new birth from above that's taking place. And let's not um, sanitize new birth too much. Some of us in this room know what it is like to take a newborn baby home from the hospital and know we don't have an instruction manual. Some of us know what it is to be nervous about every sound a child makes or, or every challenge that arises. We know that the experience of welcoming new life is like navigating a whole new world where there is no instruction manual, where we find ourselves asking and seeking and trying and failing and learning again and trying to discover this entirely different world that we've been handed. Don't rush past that when you hear Peter talk about a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't rush past that when you hear Jesus say to Nicodemus, don't you realize, man, you got to be born again from above. There's a new world coming to life, a new morning breaking, a new day rising, and it challenges us to think and feel and serve in different ways. And we're not going to get it right all the time because we're trying to find our way in a new world. And that's just the reality of the larger church in this part of the world right now. It doesn't even count where you folks are somewhere in your seminary education in this particular moment in the life of the church. 
I think it is remarkable and encouraging and impressive and admirable that you all are saying yes to a call from God at this moment in the life of the church. And I don't blame you if you've got some questions you haven't quite figured out about that yet. You're not alone. Personally, communally, at this moment, maybe we can all identify a little bit, at least, with where these disciples are in this scene narrated in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. Hungry, tired. It's the last week of classes, right? Amen. Papers to write. Tests. And they're all on the same day, right? At least that's how it used to be. I thought there was a faculty committee that organized those kinds of conspiracies. I could never prove it. But in my student days, I wondered. The day is just breaking. New light is shining. Resurrection is bursting forth. And it's life-giving and terrifying all at once. And so maybe we can see ourselves in the story with enough clarity that we can give these disciples a break as they put on their clothes to jump in the water. If we can find our way and see the text in that way, then we can hear the gospel that the text announces. The gospel that the text announces, praise God, is not the disciples on their own, in their own power and in their own agency, figured out how to live in a new world being remade by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, the gospel is that before these disciples saw the risen Jesus, the risen Jesus saw them. The gospel is before they knew how to recognize him or respond to him or listen to his voice, he saw them and he called out to them in their exhaustion and in their uncertainty and said to them, friends. Just as it was true in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John when Jesus told one of his soon-to-be disciples, I saw you under the tree before you saw me. So now here by the lake of Tiberias, he sees them first. He reaches out to them before they can reach back to him. He finds them. And reaches toward them. Look at the way he does so. <laughs> he guides them in their confusion. I'm not sure they wanted his help. Anybody ever had unsolicited advice in a place where you thought you knew what you were doing and you, you loved it a lot? I'm sure these professional fishermen loved it when this volunteer on the shore said, hey, try the other side. But when they do, they haul in this great catch. He feeds them in their exhaustion and gives them strength. I wonder what place of uncertainty or frustration 
or exhaustion you inhabit today where you need to hear Jesus show up and speak to you the word friend. I wonder what place of deep spiritual hunger you feel today where you need to experience the abundant provision of the food that only the one who is the bread of life can provide. Then notice, <laughs> Jesus doesn't stop just by guiding them or finding them or feeding them. He finds the place in their life where they most need to experience his resurrection power personally. And he approaches that need for resurrection with great intentionality. Look at what happens with Peter. Look at Jesus' intentional meeting Peter. <laughs> there is a table. There is a charcoal fire. You don't get any extra credit because we're not going to turn this into a Q&A. But I bet you can think of the only other time in the gospel narratives where there's a charcoal fire. It's in the 18th chapter of John where Jesus is standing trial for his life inside. And out in the courtyard, Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire where three times he denies that he knows who Jesus is. He does this after having announced to the other disciples, oh, to Jesus in the presence of the other disciples, I, I, I love you so much more than these other folks do that when they all fall away, I'll still be there. Remember that statement when you hear Jesus say to Peter for the first time at the charcoal fire at the table, do you love me more than these? Really? A second time, do you love me? A third time, do you love me? And the text says that in that moment, Peter is hurt. Peter grieves. but Jesus keeps going. The gospels say that, the commentaries say that this is a rehabilitation of Peter. No, it's a resurrection because Jesus intentionally, steadfastly, walking with Peter to the place of Peter's denial, speaks to Peter in a way that he can be lifted out of the experience of denial and set free to follow again and serve again and lead again in the very place that Peter most needs to experience resurrection Jesus meets him all the way in that place, not easily, not without pain, but with intentionality and focus and summons Peter back to life from that place of failure. I think we should pay attention to the fact here that resurrection, the intentionality with which Jesus meets us in this new world doesn't always feel pleasant. Jesus sometimes confronts us with difficult and challenging truths where we need to allow him to work in us and summon us to a greater kind of faithfulness. I think that's what the risen Jesus is doing to the church in this moment of change and challenge around our history of white supremacy and racial prejudice. I think that's what Jesus is doing to the church in asking us to think differently about all the ways in which 
uh, male dominance has ravaged congregation and held back the leadership gifts of women, I think those places of pain and suffering and struggle are not just the culture asking us to think differently. It's the risen Jesus peering into our places of greatest brokenness and asking us to go all the way into those places so he can then say to us again and again, follow me, stand on your feet and live with me, offer a more beautiful witness, be a more powerful kind of community, have a life in this world that looks more like the life I'm making possible in my resurrection life. That's not always pleasant. It's not always tis so sweet and tis so easy. And our first response is not always it is well with my soul. But in those moments of grief and pain and struggle, we need to recognize that we're exactly where Peter is. Peter peering into our hearts. Peter asking us, meeting us in those places, asking us over and over again, do you love me? Will you set this aside? Will you dare to let me make something new and beautiful and wonderful in you? Jesus comes to us in the places we, we are most broken and cannot put ourselves back together again and walks with us into those places of vulnerability, not allowing us to deny them and avoid them and pretend like they're not there and say, well, if we just pretend like it's not there, it'll go away. We Baptists have 400 years of history in North America that doesn't work. If you're going to find your way, in a new world, you shouldn't be surprised that there's, there's that moment where you hurt inside. And it's not because you're a prisoner of guilt. And it's not because the culture is playing games around you. It's because the risen Christ has done it again. He showed up by the shore and he's called out to you and he's walked with you all the way to your own good Friday. And he sat with you there. He's not left you alone there. He's held you there, but he's not let you go there until you're willing to hear him say again, follow me. The gospel is that Christ loves us so much that he does not leave us alone in our places of greatest brokenness. The gospel is that Christ is doing a new thing in the church right now, and it's not just up to us to figure it out in a study committee. The good news is that the risen Christ is doing now what the risen Christ has always done. He's coming to us. He's meeting us. He's guiding us. He's feeding us. He's loving us into a whole new thing. Where are you being comforted and challenged and renewed and remade this Easter. When is the moment you've looked up and seen the risen Jesus on the shore? Where is the place of brokenness and failure, personal or structural, where Jesus has gone all the way in so that you might come all the way out?
So if you really want to give, we, we Baptists are really good at giving everybody else a hard time. But I dropped by the, today during the last week of class to let you know that as it was in John 21, so it is today. The day is just breaking. Oh, you could hire consultants who will tell you we're collapsing for a really nice fee. But what I'm coming to believe is it's just after daybreak. And Christ is summoning the church to a whole new way of being. And he's called you. <laughs> Women and men from all around the world to be partners in that resurrection. And the good news is He's right there on the shore. And he says to you, no matter how exhausted you are, or how confused you are, or how much you're struggling, friend, Would you pray with me? Gracious and holy Lord, we do live in very different times. The world around us is filled with injustice. There is still too much brokenness and sin in our own lives and in the lives of our congregations and the larger communities to which our congregations belong. But today we take great hope because we can see with eyes of faith that we are not in a place of dying but instead you are standing with us in this moment of change, inviting us to be part of the work of resurrection that you are doing in the church and in the world. You're inviting us to sing with new joy, to practice our faith with new passion, to be open to the hard work of experiencing your healing grace in our places of greatest brokenness, so that we can be set free to live with greater faithfulness. So we pray that in this time of change, in this new day that is breaking, you would help us pay attention to you, that you would help us notice where you're at work in our lives, in our congregations, that we would hear your voice with clarity, summoning us to participate in taking care of your people and loving you more completely.
Lord, I pray especially for the students and faculty and staff of Truett Seminary. Late in this semester, meet them in their exhaustion. Feed them with nourishment and rest and grace and renewal. And Lord, when the last papers are turned in and graded, and when the last assignments are done, give to the students and faculty and staff an even more powerful vision of the resurrecting work that you are doing in this world and invite them to jump all the way in. We ask these prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.